um, uh, a sermon series that has this, this kind of title. Understand three simple things about Jerusalem. One, we're all struggling sinners and we take sin seriously because it kills joy and distances us from God. So sin is very, very serious to us. Secondly, we all need God's saving grace equally. Can I get an amen on that one? We need God's grace equally. There's not someone that's like, well, I needed a 25% less than you do. No, that, that doesn't exist. We all need it equally. And thirdly, Jesus is our answer for every sinful struggle in our lives. He's the answer. We believe Jesus helps people find their greatest joy and pleasure in him through the truth. The truth. That's for us and that's for everyone else. The truth can be very offensive to us. If you look back at John, once we get back at that in July, you'll see coming up that people turned their back on Jesus and walked away because what he said was hard. They were offended. Truth is offensive to us because we're broken and because it calls all of us to radical change and we don't like change. But in the truth, God is extending His kindness His grace to us and promises to help us through whatever. I mean, make up a sin, fill in the blank, doesn't matter what it is or how grievous it is, God will help us through whatever if we trust and follow His Son. So let's go to work. One essential tool for carpenters is their chalk line. If any of you have done carpentry work, the chalk line is really, really, really important. A chalk line is used to snap straight lines for placing walls or cutting plywood. Now, if a framer fails to use a chalk line, they're likely to have crooked walls uh, or cuts. You need straight lines and cuts for quality, enduring homes. Crooked lines are adjudicated by a straight line standard. So what's the chalk line for marriage and sex? It's Jesus. Jesus is the straight line. The design and definition that Jesus established for marriage and sex is the straight line. Measured against Jesus, we are all sexually crooked. No one aligns perfectly with the standard. So this sermon is not simply about clarifying homosexuality and Jesus' view on it, but it's helping to expose sin in married couples and helping them to better align with uh, Jesus Christ's purpose for their marriage. So we'll begin with what Jesus affirms about marriage and sex this week. So what does he affirm? What's the positive view of Jesus on this? Because what he affirms provides a necessary context and explanation for what he prohibits, which will be next week. For what purpose did Jesus create marriage and sex? Jesus designed and defined marriage and sex to glorify God. The magnificent purpose of marriage and sex is Jesus. We can deduce from Colossians 1, 16 through 18 that marriage and sex were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for the glory of Jesus. We can also infer that Jesus is preeminent over sex. He's more important. He's more beautiful. He's more enjoyable. 
Marriage and sex have been divinely arranged to reflect the beauty and power and pleasure of God and His gospel. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that our anatomy is meant for the Lord. That our bodies are temples of God who dwells in us and that we are not our own because Christ bought us with his life. So Paul concludes this, therefore glorify God in your body. The marriage covenant and our anatomy exist to glorify God and display his gospel. The Bible has a lot to say, tons to say on marriage and sex. Too much to cover in one sermon, so we're only just scratching the surface. We're only just hitting a general bird's eye view here, but let's get a little taste of it. Let's, let's get inside of the text to see. Jesus has something to say about marriage and sex in Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. As we go through these, it might be helpful for you to, to turn ahead to them and keep your Bibles open there. Here in uh, Genesis 1 is where, we, where God uh, is setting up the structure and institutions of the universe, and keep in mind, before sin corrupted everything, before sin corrupted everything, God said in verse 26 of Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. The Trinity not only constructed humans in their image, They gave them dominion or meaningful work. Verse 27 adds, male and female, he created them. Male and female reflect the Trinity. Male and female are of the same substance, equal in value, yet each beautifully different while complementing the other. Doesn't that sound like week one and what we looked at in the Trinity? Masculinity and femininity are beautifully constructed gifts from God. Men are men, women are women, both beautiful, both designed and defined by God. Verse 28 says, God blessed them. And then he gave them one of their first commands. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right away, God gave the married couple a blessing and a responsibility to reproduce themselves through pleasurable sex. And this is reiterated again in Genesis 9, 1, and 9, which is to Noah. And you know, in the middle of all this, it's, it's really easy to forget that God commanded, God commanded us from the very beginning to have children. The command hasn't changed. Children are one significant purpose of marriage. Pastor and Dr. R.C. Sproul wrote, the original meaning of Genesis 9-7, that's referring to the reiteration to Noah, is easy to discern. Clearly, every physically able married couple is expected to have children, increasing the number of divine image bearers on the planet. In a day when children are increasingly seen as a burden that keeps parents from fully enjoying the fruits of their labor and achieving personal aspirations, this word on the importance of raising godly families needs to be heard anew, end quote. Marriage and sex were designed, by and large, as a means for children 
and as a loving environment to lead those children to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ. Marriage and sex were absolutely created for intimacy and were created for pleasure. Absolutely that's true. And those who cannot have children are no less married or faithful to Jesus But it is clear that children were in God's design for marriage and sex. Notice in verse 31, God looked at creation and it was very good. Adam and Eve and marriage and sex added the very to the good. If you follow that from the rest of Genesis up until that point. Genesis 1 and two, illustrate what Jesus intends marriage and sex to be. One woman, one man working together, relating to God and each other while anticipating children. Jesus thinks that that arrangement is very good. Jesus has something to say about marriage and sex in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The first thing that God declared not good was Adam's aloneness. Adam had God, right? So was God deficient somehow? No, not at all. See, God made Adam relational in need of a human complement. Don't miss the obvious. God purposefully, intentionally made Adam anatomically male. God knew he would then create an anatomical complement, an emotional, spiritual, and intellectual match for Adam. His anatomy and being were uniquely designed to be complemented for something or by something for the glory of God. Adam was to a certain extent, designed with sex and procreation in mind. Adam and Eve and marriage and sex were all designed with the gospel in mind. For one day, God would raise up a child to redeem his people. From the start, marriage and sex points to Jesus. From the start, points to Jesus. God was not surprised by Adam's aloneness. It did not come as a shock to God. He created him alone. Verse 18 again. I will make him a helper fit for him. God would make an etzer, an etzer in Hebrew, someone matchless to help him out. A sidekick, so to speak. First, understand Adam was created with a need of help, a need of help. He had a need. He needed someone to come and help. He needed a compliment. Secondly, before all of you women grab your tomatoes and gun it at me here because you, uh, you're offended by this, understand that being a helper is not an inferior status. Eve was 100% equal to Adam. In Psalm 33:20, God is referred to as our help, same Hebrew word. The Holy Spirit is referred to in the New Testament as helper. Helper is a glorious and beautiful role. It's not some subsection or inferior status. Well, verse 20 says that no animal was a fit. So God went to work and Adam underwent surgery. 
And uh, verse 22 tells us about that surgery. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a... Now, whatever comes next, whatever fills that blank in, is what God thinks, what God determines, what God decides is the best fit, the best helper, the best complement, and the best sexual partner for Adam. Anything at this point could fit that in, so we need to wait to find out what God determines is that, that fit, that right fit for Adam. And what was it? A woman. A woman. A beautiful, elegant, industrious, intelligent, and joyful woman. God's best woman. She was unimpacted by the fall. There was no sin in this woman. No sin in this man. The Trinity decided that the best fit for a man was a woman. Everything about a woman, not just her anatomy, but everything about her is custom fit for man. The Trinity made that choice. Jesus made that choice. It's great when the father of a bride, we've all seen this, father of the bride brings uh, his beautiful daughter down the aisle and presents her uh, to this eager, probably sweating groom that's like swallowing hard at this point. You know, I... Sometimes they butcher the vows. When I got married, I, I just want to make the section short so I know exactly what to repeat on cue because it's like, I can't remember, man. My, my. So everyone stands and watches at that moment when she comes down. It's a great moment. Verse 22 says, God brought Eve to Adam and all of creation was watching. And what did the groom say? Meh, I was hoping for something else. No, that's not what he says. He's excited and he has reason to be. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Finally, someone who fit. Finally, someone who complimented him. A companion that God designed. She was beautifully different and beautifully unique, yet, yet from the same stuff, so to speak. What fun they had. What a ceremony. And the last two verses of Genesis 2 make one of the most clarifying statements in the Bible about marriage and sex, a statement that is repeated several times in the New Testament. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become achad, one flesh, achad. But this is 2014, man. Get with it. That's so archaic. Marriage and sex have evolved, man. They've progressed. We've advanced past all that, right? No. Look very closely at the text. In verse 24, it says father and mother. Father and mother are mentioned. Does that strike anybody as odd? There were no father and mother at this point. There were none. Adam was made from dust. Eve was made from Adam. No mom and dad. And God is not in view because to leave God would make absolutely no sense. And God is not mother. God is father, son, spirit. Verse 24 is prophetic. 
It's what will be for all generations to come. Adam and Eve would begin the nuclear family movement. Verse 24, what that does is it protects the design and definition of marriage and sex forever. It ends the debate in the first two chapters of the Bible. And the security of redemptive history is built upon Genesis 1.28. Mary... Joseph, Solomon, David, Abraham, all came about from Genesis 1.28. Redemptive history doesn't work without Genesis 1.28. God brought Eve to Adam, therefore a man shall leave. The word is atzav, or let go of. For Adam, from Adam on, a man will let go of his parents. Now, if he's letting go of his parents, who is he going to grab on to? He will davach, or hold fast to, or cling to his wife. They let go of their parents, and they grab on to each other. And it ends with the two becoming ahav, one flesh. Sound familiar? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is ahad, one. Same word. Marriage and sex mirror the Trinity, oneness and distinction. One Hebrew dictionary says, Ahad stresses unity while recognizing diversity within that oneness. What a remarkably sexual, intimate, and holy union which reflects the very being of God. That's deep. That's really, really deep theology connected to marriage and sex. Verse 25 ensures that we understand what's going on. I love that God adds this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One man, one woman, both naked, and they experienced no shame. Absolutely no shame. Nothing to hide. No tainted past. No remembering back to ex-lovers that they had in a different time. No guilt. No inhibitions. Just unbroken relationship with God and each other. Passionate love unhindered by sin. Joy. Pleasure. God's best brings love and intimacy and pleasure. I've chosen this next word carefully. Any distortion of God's best brings shame. And shame makes you want to hide. Shame is bondage, not freedom. Any distortion of Genesis 1 and 2. I said last week, whenever people compromise or dismiss the inspiration and authority of the Bible, it inevitably ends in justification and celebration of sin. And let me add that it also increases shame and guilt which inevitably become an oppressive prison. Can you see that in our culture? People oppressed by guilt and shame. They want to crawl in a hole and hide from the world. You can see it everywhere. We at Jerusalem Church believe Jesus is freedom. We believe the truth sets us free. That no matter where our crookedness, where we are broken, God can set us straight. His grace is power. Jesus has something to say about marriage and sex through Solomon. Song of Solomon is a vivid and sensual book on marriage and love and sexual pleasure. God devoted, have you ever thought of this before? An entire book 
of the Bible to expounding how Genesis 1 and 2 work between husband and wife. And without get going into detail, the song is passionate and the song is graphic. So I highly recommend that you read this book. Read the book. It's a great book. It explains a lot. Jump to Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Solomon, he's giving his son wise counsel in this passage, and he began by pleading with his son to listen to his wisdom. And Solomon wrote as counsel to his son, and this is what he wrote, Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Solomon encouraged his son to enjoy his wife as provision against adultery. His wife is sexual refreshment for him alone. She is to be barak, blessed. He is to samach, or rejoice in her as his wife. Her body is for him to enjoy and delight in to the point of love intoxication. Inebriation in love. Blitzed in love. I mean, I don't want to keep going with this analogy, but you get the idea. Love intoxication. This is what Jesus considers very good. Later in Proverbs 18, 22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. God will bless marriage. He will. God will keep your marriage together and bless you when it conforms to his design and definition. Jesus has something to say about marriage and sex in Mark 10, 6 through 9. Now, you could also go to Matthew 19, 4 through 6. It's a parallel passage. Mark 10, 6 through 9. Little help in, a uh, little tip rather, in when you're studying uh, the Bible to know what holds from the Old Testament. Okay, what still applies? Here's a tip. Whenever you see the New Testament affirm or reject something that the Old Testament affirms or rejects, you know that it's still relevant and applicable for today. Okay? So if they affirm each other, you know it still holds. Nowhere in Scripture does God change His design and definition of marriage and sex. It stays consistent, Genesis 1 and 2, throughout the entire Scripture. The Bible only affirms Genesis 1 and 2. Watch how Jesus upholds Genesis 1 and 2 in Mark 10, 6 through 9. Jesus says this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Pharisees are grilling Jesus on divorce and, uh, in Mark 10, and Jesus uses Genesis 1 and 2 to confirm what is still true about marriage and sex. After quoting Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus added this, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's just reiterating it. 
Jesus affirmed that several things will always be true. This is what he affirmed. The beautiful distinction between male and female. He affirmed a man and woman leave their parents to be united to each other. He affirmed marriage and sex unite husband and wife as one flesh. And he affirmed that God himself has joined them together. Jesus did nothing but affirm marriage as it has been since the garden. What Jesus affirms and blesses says an awful lot about what Jesus rejects. Though Jesus is first and foremost about yes, not no. And I think people get this mixed up about Christianity. They hear so much no, no, no. And they miss the point that God started with yes. What did he say about the tree? He didn't say don't eat from the tree. And by the way, you can eat all the rest if you want. He didn't say that. He said all of the garden. Just enjoy. Just have at it. Eat from whatever tree. And And just so you know, lay off the one tree because if you eat of it, you will die. He starts with yes. He starts with him. He starts with perfect relationship. There is so so much yes in scripture about marriage and sex that if you hear no, 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 you're not listening closely. You've got to start with what he said yes to and then move to what he says no to so that you understand why he said no to begin with because he has something better that he says yes to. Jesus is yes. Jesus is yes. All right, Jesus has something to say about marriage and sex through the apostle Paul. People tend to be very, very hard on Paul for what he wrote. But understand, Jesus told Paul what to write. Paul didn't just up and, man, I'm going to drill them No, Jesus told him what to write. So being tough on Paul is being tough on... Being tough on Paul is being tough on Jesus. Ephesians 5. There, Paul explains what marriage is all about. Just to make sure I'm theologically correct on that last point. Paul is not Jesus. You get me? I'm saying what Paul writes under the inspiration of Scripture, Jesus affirmed and has inspired him to write. That was my point. All right. Just Jesus and Paul, not the same. Okay. Marriage points to Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. Ephesians 5. Any attempt to reshape and redefine marriage and sex is more significantly a tampering with Jesus himself and how he loves and cares for his bride. Listen for how interwoven earthly marriage is with how Jesus saves sinners. This is the gospel in Ephesians 5. Listen for how marriage and sex illustrate the gospel. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, 
but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is meant to display the gospel. The gospel. Jesus lovingly gave his life on a brutal, bloody, blood-soaked Roman cross for the sake of his would-be beautiful bride to win her and to clean her up from her sin, to present her to himself in splendor, arrayed with holiness, and they would become one. Christ would unify himself to his bride by his work. Jesus lived for her, died for her, and gave her his righteousness as a gift so she could be united to him forever. This is the gospel. The gospel is what marriage is meant to exalt. If we define marriage as between one man and one woman, many will hear in that message only discrimination. They will hear hatred They will hear isolation. May I suggest that by defining marriage as Jesus does, we are upholding the most radically loving event of history. We are upholding the gospel. That Jesus gave his own life to redeem his bride so they could enjoy union together forever. We want those struggling with homosexuality to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ. And that's why we are holding fast to his design and definition. The gospel does not take freedom from people. The gospel gives freedom to people. It liberates them to enjoy more fully all that the gospel has to offer, all that Jesus has to offer. This is what sin does. It breaks our union with God. And Jesus comes and restores it. So we must be very clear, my friends, to define sin carefully. Because when we start arguing away certain things and saying they're not sin, it's tampering with the gospel and people finding their joy in Christ. Marriage and sex were made to glorify God. Marriage finds its meaning in Jesus. How careful we must be with marriage and sex as to never distort the beautiful gospel. One more point from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. I'll give you a moment to get there. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. It's important you see this. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, which happened to be uh, steeped in sexual immorality in all different ways, shapes, and forms. And this is what he wrote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
But then, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's not a newsflash for you, but sexual temptation is rampant. It's everywhere. The, the temptation is sexual immorality, which is sexual immorality is just a grab bag for sexual sin in general, is it very enticing in our culture. It's everywhere. And notice Paul's solution to sexual immorality. Sex between a husband and a wife. God gives no other option for sexual expression outside of marriage. As we'll see next week, everything outside of sex between husband and wife is sexual immorality. Paul mentioned conjugal rights, which is the Greek word ophele, which literally means a debt of goods. A debt of good, which is interesting, but it's actually used as a euphemism for sex, meaning the marital duty of sex. Sex is a joyful, mutual commitment you made to your spouse when you took your wedding vows. You owe each other. You are indebted to each other sex. That's what Paul is saying. Living for Jesus and remaining sexually faithful to your spouse, if you're a single uh, sexually chaste and, and uh, faithful to Christ, that is very difficult. Because guess what? We're all crooked. We're all sexually off. We're all sexual deviants. We don't get it right. This is very difficult. In fact, it takes supernatural grace. So God encourages married couples, do not stop having sex unless if you both abstain for a time so that you can pray together, but be sure to rush back together again so Satan won't tempt you. Sex is grace. It's a gift of God to help married couples remain holy and pure. In verse nine, Paul talks about single people and widows. So if you're single and you're a widow, listen, listen close. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So if you're single this morning, or if you're a widow, and are porao, or burning up, you're aflame with sexual desire. If that's you, then God's gracious and good provision for you is marriage, as designed and defined by Genesis 1 and 2. That's the only provision Jesus gives for sexual exploration. That's it. That's what, the, that's what the Bible gives. Everything else is defined as sexual immorality. And that's going to get interesting when we approach sexual immorality in general next week because Jesus is pretty direct, pretty firm. He's got some words for all of us. Every place in Scripture where marriage is explained or taught, it's in the context of a man and woman. It's unmistakable if you read the Bible fairly. Jesus designed and defined marriage and sex as between one man and one woman. Absolutely nothing in the Bible suggests otherwise. Nothing. Now, the Bible talks a lot about many distortions of marriage and sex. So in that respect, it, it labels out some different ones, some varied ones. All right, But only after describing what the purest design and definition is. We are all sexually broken and distorted. Every marriage is broken and veils the gospel to a certain extent. So knowing the depth of our sin and crookedness, coming to grips with that, 
Um, we must commit to seeing God's grace worked out in our lives. We must work to see our sexuality brought in line with God's design and definition, whether married or single. Jesus has the power to straighten out our crookedness. So what we've done today is essentially define sexual morality. Next week, we'll define sexual immorality as Jesus understands it. But before next week, I want you just to think about something. God's word is the authority on faith and life. That is our authority. That is the only authority. But sociology can also help affirm things that we read in the Bible. Dr. Douglas Allen from Canada conducted an extensive study comparing children in same-sex households with those in homes with the married father and mother. Dr. Allen told Citizen Link that a child from a same-sex home is 35% more likely to fail a grade than a child from an opposite-sex married home. And in stats, that is very, very uh, significant. Glenn Stanton, the director of family formation studies that focus on the family, said, quote, all things being equal, children with married parents consistently do better in every measure of well-being than their peers who have single, cohabiting, divorced, or step-parents. This is a stronger indicator than parental race, economic or educational status, or neighborhood. The literature on this is broad and strong, end of quote. Sociologist Mark Regnerus of the University of Texas at Austin did an extensive study, and to my knowledge, the most extensive study available uh, to date, on the differences in outcomes between children of a parent who had a same-sex relationship and children raised by their married biological mothers and fathers. And in the conclusion of his study, Dr. Regnerus wrote uh, this about his study, quote, that his study clearly reveals that children appear most apt to succeed well as adults on multiple accounts and across a variety of domains when they spend their entire childhood with their married mother and father, and especially when the parents remain married to the present day. Now, you can twist statistics to say anything under the sun. You'll find some wacky doctor somewhere and say, well, look at that, it says that this is the, the, the whatever you want to fill in there. So, so I understand how limited statistics are. That's why we go to the authority of God's word. But just understand that there are good, reliable, extensive academic studies that affirm at many points what the Bible teaches about marriage, sex, and children. We all judge the world by some standard. What standard do you use to draw your conclusions Jesus never had a crooked or distorted thought or action in his life. He was straight over the plate all the time. And he has expressed his divine opinion on sexuality very clearly in his word. Are we listening to Jesus first? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are all so broken. Man, our minds... Ah, they don't work right. There are times, God, that I want to think one thing, but all these weird and whacked out and crooked thoughts start coming into my mind, and, and they're very hard to deal with, God. I need your supernatural grace, and so does this church. Man, we, we get caught up in weird thinking all the time. And the thing that's gonna keep us straight, the thing that's gonna keep us aligned with your will, is your word. 
your word. As spoken so clearly through the prophets, as spoken through your one and only son, as spoken through your inspired scripture. God, would you please make our minds straight? Um, We're just so broken. We need to be fixed. And so, God, we repent of our sin. We turn from it. Sin is very serious, and we know that. And so we just want to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Our marriages are broken. We know it. We, we see it. We know what happens behind closed doors. And God, all of us knows we are broken and that we contribute brokenness to the marriage. And so I just pray that you will help us to live for the glory of Jesus Christ at every moment in our marriages, that we can shine the glory of Jesus, that we can shine the gospel because that is what our marriage is for to shine the gospel, to point to a God who redeems and a God who forgives and a God who has exclusive love and a groom who has beautiful and exclusive love for his one bride. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. And just mold us and shape us after the image of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.